Why hello there you. Before you get on and listen to this latest episode, I want to ask you a question. Do you have enough Myrtleade in your life? If the answer is no, did you know that you can get exclusive access to two whole previous seasons, dozens of exclusive episodes and a catalogue of minisodes? All you have to do is head on over to patreon.com forward slash Myrtleade spelt M-U-R-D-E-R-L-A-I-D-E and join our Patreon family. For as little as five bucks a month, you get more Myrtleade than your strange mind can handle. The more you pledge, the more you get. Seriously, guys, that is like a single cup of coffee per month and you help support me as a creator and you help keep this podcast an ad-free zone. Because, you know, there has to be one space in our lives that's ad-free. Okay, on with today's offering. strange ones and welcome to the launch of season three of Murderlade the podcast which I bring forward to you by scratching the itch that lives in my head thank you all for being here with me again for season three which is really exciting see I collate most of the stories I want to tell in advance from crimes that I remember from Adelaide or surrounding areas I do some research, flesh them out, write the ones I'm most connected to. Then I record and judge if it's one that will get published. Yes, there's a large scrap heap of ones that aren't published. This has been my process of murder laid, if you will. That was also when the majority of my cases I was doing in the first two seasons were from my own backyard. And you may be like, ugh, you just told us all about the Bernies on Patreon. Clearly Perth, not Adelaide. But I actually lived in Perth in the 90s. And the crazy backdrop of those murders, coincidentally, the Claremont killings were happening while I was there. Clubbing and drinking off my not lucky lady that I was to get away with that one. This next season is going to be a different process for me and probably for you. Because I am now reaching further to find stories that really resonate with me. See, I can't just give you any murder. I have to feel passionate and connected or it's like just not worth it. A lot of behind the scenes stuff happens to bring you this show. And if I'm not connected with the story, if I don't want to know more, then how can I expect you, my strange ones, to connect with the episodes? So we will be following suit from the Patreon episodes where the first few episodes here are going to be from Western Australia as was requested by a patron. 
After that, we'll move to Queensland and we'll skip across the ditch and do some from New Zealand. Then we'll do New South Wales and Queens. Then we'll do New South Wales and Victoria. And just for the hell of it, I'm also going to share another of my obsessive cases, which is actually from Austria. I'll be covering crimes from Tasmania and don't feel left out. I'll also be doing an American one. And Adelaide will not be left out at all. It will still certainly have a starring role in Murderlade. So then, yeah, Patreon. Seamless segue. I'm always really good at this advertising part, aren't I? <laughs> if you want to say in what we cover and you want to chat with other strange ones, you want to get twice the content that you currently get on your regular feed, then you have to go to patreon.com forward, forward slash Murderlade. Spell M-U-R-D-E-R-L-A-I-D-E. And choose the level of support you want to contribute to the podcast and the extra level of content or merchandise you would like. Patreon is the most honest way for me to continue to bring you this show and hopefully add value to the world. By supporting the show on Patreon, you get heaps of extra murder aid and you also get a hand in helping to bring this message to the greater world. Merchandise is available at www.murderlaid.com. So let's get on with it and kick off season three. This podcast contains graphic depictions of violence, salty language and poor grammar. And you, my dearest barking lover, right? Sources for today's episode are the Australian Federal Police Missing Persons page, an article from Western Australia Today by Phil Hickey, the Australian Missing Persons Register, the West Australian, the State Coroner's Report on Missing Sarah McMahon, and an article by Grant Taylor in the West Australian. Sarah Ann McMahon was a typical 20-year-old when she went missing on the 8th of November in the year 2000. The Perth girl had the things everyone needs to get on in life. A family, a job, a car, and the latest in technology, the much sought after mobile phone. Sarah was a beautiful young woman with long auburn hair, sparkly green eyes, about five foot six inches and a size 10, I'm gonna say. She was pretty, slim, and smart. She had the amazing and popular Jennifer Aniston cut made famous by Rachel. She was also a doting big sister to Kate. Sarah lived in the family home at Parkerville. She was enrolled at Murdoch University, but she had deferred her classes for what she had stated to be family problems. The coroner later stated that he believed it was probably because of recreational drug use. I don't think that it really matters. On the 8th of November 2000, Sarah did a normal work day at this irrigation sales company, which is somewhere she'd only worked for eight days. Now, this workplace was in Claremont in Perth, Western Australia. Yes, famous hunting grounds for the Claremont serial killer. And a regular haunt for David and Catherine Burney, grotesque sexual serial killers that we've just covered in a five-part Patreon series uh, from back in the mid-80s. Sarah was at work drinks with colleagues and she left around 5pm saying she had to meet a man at Bassendine, a suburb about half an hour drive inland. Sarah was her usual bubbly self. She was seen by her workmates 
leaving the work drinks in her white Ford Meteor, and she was talking on her mobile phone. That is the last known sighting of Sarah McMahon. She has made no contact with friends or family, not even when reports of her mother's terminal illness were published. She has no tax record after the 8th of November. She has not used a Medicare card. She has never accessed her bank for that first paycheck. 13 days after her disappearance, a family member of Sarah's was visiting a sick friend. In the car park at Middle Swan District Hospital, they spotted what they thought might have been Sarah's car. When police arrived, found out indeed it actually was. I would hate to be that relative. No evidence as to where Sarah was could be found in the car. Highlighting the danger we all now know Sarah must have been in. Later, Sarah McMahon's keys and mobile phone were found on the side of the road on the Great Northern Highway about five minutes from where her car was located. Only one person of interest has ever been named. The super fucking creepy Donald Victor Mori. Logs from Sarah's phone the day she disappeared revealed that four calls were made to her on that day. One was from a friend who has been fully vetted by police. One from her sister Kate who requested a lift home at around 8.30 that night. And two were from Maury. Maury, however, has an alibi. Logs from his self-kept trucker's diary have him at his workplace cleaning a truck at the time Sarah disappeared. Maury, however, is not the best source of fucking information. He admitted in a 2012 inquest into Sarah's disappearance that, quote, quite a lot of things I said to police were obviously mumbo-jumbo. But as far as Sarah being alive, she's alive, end quote. And that is in his own words, so can we really trust his self-assessed time log? My guess is not a fucking chance. He told the coroner that Sarah is alive and that she'd run away overseas, that she now has two children, yet she has made no contact with her family upon the death of her parents or when her baby sister got married and had a child. In 2003, three years after Sarah Sarah disappeared, Maury was charged with the attempted murder of a sex worker in Perth. So the super creepy guy got this woman into his innocuous white Holden Commodore, like the most common car in Australia. My dad says that a white Commodore is like a clitoris because every cunt has one. And therefore, you have heard me mention it over and over on this podcast because it seems to be the car of choice to abduct people in. After this poor sex worker got in the car with him, he put rope around her neck and pretty solidly attempted to strangle her. But this badass woman got away, made a screaming run for it, and was picked up by another car, saving her life. Donald Morey, of course, denied the charges and said he'd never met the woman. Um, however, she identified him, and then his DNA was found in her hair. Gotcha, motherfucker! After the regular rigmarole, he was eventually convicted in 2005 of that attempted murder, and he was sentenced to 13 years. Unlike most of the cases we cover here, he served every single goddamn day of that sentence. And he was released on the 17th of September 2018. After his release, the prison board required that he was under regular supervision, which actually ends in September this year. While in prison, he refused offender treatment 
and upon release was still considered a threat to the community. Quote, the board is of the opinion that the period of community supervision will enable further work to be undertaken to address your outstanding treatment needs and reduce the risk of you committing a serious violent offence and the risk that you pose to the safety of the community. Great, let's let those people out then. So you would think he would be a good boy, right? Nope. Less than eight weeks after his release, Maury was in West Australian court in Armidale, this time on weapons charges. He was charged for carrying a knife and fined two grand. At what point do we say these people cannot curb their own behaviour and act as a regular part of society? For fuck's sake, who was he going out to stab? So Coroner Alistair Hope was the coroner dealing with the inquest into Sarah's death. And his finding is that Sarah most likely was murdered the day she disappeared. Why Maury is still breathing fresh air, we can only speculate that there is no physical evidence to tie him with Sarah's disappearance. Even though he was the last person to call her, which her phone tells us she answered his call at 5.20 in the afternoon. He is clearly a violent asshole with other women, and he has some anger management issues towards women. He has not sought any rehabilitation for this issue. So let me describe this asshole to you. He's now in his 60s, he's got grey hair receding back from the crown, he has a large beaked nose, several medium-sized moles between his nose and under his eyes. His eyes always look like one is bigger than the other. His slightly built keeps his keeps a really short cropped salt and pepper goatee. He has ear scars from old piercings in both ears. Here's this look, you know, like someone who can't see a problem with the way they are. You know, he was a person who was carrying a weapon despite the fact that he was on parole. This 65-year-old is nothing if he is not dangerous. So Donald Morey had some kind of friendship with Sarah McMahon. Despite the fact that she was young and gorgeous and he was in his mid-40s and how do I put this kindly? Not gorgeous? They met regularly and according to her phone records, they spoke pretty frequently. Sarah's sister Amanda said that Donald Morey is a creep and overly touchy with Sarah. I'm going to go out on a limb here, not too far out because, I mean, he has the record to back it up. I think Donald Morey was probably Sarah's dealer. Also of note, records from Donald Morey's own mobile phone place him near the car park at the Middle Swan Hospital, where Sarah's car was found, at about 20 to 6 the night she disappeared. His homemade alibi log thing says that at that time he was fueling up a truck suburbs away. So I think we can now call that log bullshit, right? Also, he never used his company-issued fuel card on that afternoon. I think we're meant to believe that he used his own cash to fuel up a company truck, even though he had a card to do it at the company's expense. So now let's get into the even more fanciful. When Maury was questioned under oath at the 2012 inquest, he had a beautifully concocted story for the court. Sarah is alive and that she'd actually run away to Canada to get away from her family. She's since had two children. P.S. She didn't have a passport and there is no record of her leaving the state, which she would have had to have done at the time to get out of the country. The only place you could get to from Perth at that time was Bali. 
There's no record of her doing that either. So Maury's account is he is actually her knight in shining armor. He helped Sarah leave and they have been in constant contact ever since. He told the court he couldn't reveal where she was or he would be putting her life and the lives of her children in danger. Oh, what a trooper. Enter Natasha Kendrick. Natasha is a Perth woman who knew Donald Morey's then housemate and co-worker, Gareth Allen and Gareth's wife. Natasha went to police in 2011 in a claim to be clearing her conscience. In a detailed interview, Natasha told police that Gareth had called her the night Sarah McMahon had disappeared and said he needed help and could she come to the Marangaroo house right away. Natasha arrived and was greeted by an agitated Gareth Allen who had grazed knuckles and a swollen hand. Natasha says that she was asked to help Gareth Allen's wife clean the house because Don Morey had, quote, done something bad. She was taken into Donald Morey's bedroom where she claims lying on the bed was the naked body of a girl that she now believes to have been Sarah McMahon. The girl had blood caked on her face and pulled on her stomach. There was a rope looped around her neck. Natasha says that she did what she was told as she was frightened of the bed, but she watched them wrap the body of the girl in Don's doona or comforter to you Americans, and that they then placed her in the back of Gareth's work ute and took off. While the guys disposed of the girl, Natasha and Gareth's wife cleaned all evidence of a struggle from the house. At the time she made this voluntary statement, Natasha was not being investigated in any way. She was not known to police for anything to do with this crime. And she also believed that she had been suffering from a terminal illness. So the reason she gave for finally coming clean was along the lines of this. She thought she was going to die. She thought there was nothing more these men could do to her, right? She wanted to come clean before she died and admit her part in Sarah's murder. Naturally, her phone was then tapped. In a call between Natasha and her brother after she had made her statement or confession or whatever it was, which was played at the inquest in 2012, in this call her brother asked who had killed Sarah, and she stated, quote, Don Maury, he's a serial killer. He's done others over East. She talked to her brother of that night, of her part in the cleanup, and of how haunted she had been by it. She said seeing Sarah's picture and her devastated family searching for her left her pretty torn up. She also told him that she had been under threat that there would be violence against her son if she spoke. Police could find no physical evidence of the murder and the Allens weren't talking. A year after this conversation and her confession, Natasha was called to testify in the inquest and she retracted her entire statement, going as far as to say that she had never been in the house, that she had never seen the body and that she knew nothing. Her reason now for what she calls a false statement is that she had been on drugs when she gave the statement and was confused. No offence, but it looks like that that's more of a long-term issue and that she could have held her own when high. Also, I would think the cops would be able to spot that shit, right? Without the statement, the cops only have two phone calls as evidence. Flimsy at best, really. Theories out there about Sarah are that she may have been a victim of the Claremont serial killer. 
Sarah went missing three years after the last confirmed victim, Kiara Glennon, who was abducted and murdered. This theory would hold some weight, but for two things. First, yes, Sarah was last seen in Claremont, as the other girls were. However, all of the victims of the Claremont killer didn't get into their own cars and drive 30 minutes east while chatting to Donald Maury on their mobile phones. Those who fell prey to the Claremont killer, it's believed they accepted lifts for him, either thinking he was a taxi driver or a cop. When the verdict in the Bradley Robert Edward trial has come in, I will be able to be less cautious about what I say here. And secondly, there's the daylight. All other Claremont victims disappeared in the wee hours of the morning under the cover of darkness. Then there is the statement by Christian Hildebrand, who was a friend of Sarah's. Christian claims that Sarah received $10,000 worth of drugs from Maury and was supposed to sell it on the street. He says he was present during a phone call between Sarah and Maury where Maury lost his shit at Sarah because he had gotten word on the street that she had dropped his name as her supplier. This theory is probably a valid one, who among us hasn't made shitty decisions when we were young. Sarah may have just gotten in over her head while trying to claw out some extra cash, not knowing she was dealing with a potentially psychopathic woman hater. Christian Hildebrand swears that Sarah was scared. Sarah was last seen wearing dark jeans, a black turtleneck sweater and a black suede jacket. Her handbag, wallet and personal effects have never been located nor has her body. If you have any information on the disappearance of Sarah McMahon, the reward for information is up to $250,000. Sarah's mother Trish died of terminal cancer in 2017 without ever knowing what happened to her daughter. With each year that goes by, the likelihood of this being solved becomes smaller. If you have any information, please call Crime Stoppers. This week's palate cleanser is a bright one. The science of happiness has nothing to do with crime, but it is a bright and shiny spot in my life that I thought I would share with you all. This podcast is a scientific approach to all of the woo-woo stuff you hear about self-help in self-help circles, about mindfulness and shit. This is actually solid studies and tested techniques to teach us all to be happier in the lives that we have. Hubby and I did the gratitude exercise. We were both surprised that we found some measured improvement in both our happiness and our satisfaction in life. Also, I dare you to undertake the fast friendship exercise and not feel more satisfied with a relationship. Turns out, after decades of being in love, there were things we absolutely didn't know about each other. I know it's normally not my speed to you, but something I'm currently feeling really into and um, it adds a ton of value to my life. I hope it adds some to yours too. Until next time, sit with one eye open and call the cops on all your dodgy neighbours.
Hello again, it's me, and can I ask you a favour? If you liked this episode of Murderlade or any previous episodes, please take a moment to rate and review. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or alternately, head on over to Facebook and rate the show at the Murderlade the Podcast page. Every rate and review helps other strange ones find us and join the family. Oh yeah, and I totally mean that in a creepy Manson family or the Aussie cult, the family kind of way. Thanks for listening.